Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Blog Talk Radio. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Talk Daytime. Tonight, we have Megan Schindler and she's the creator of She Will Fade, which is a movement based on stories of the victims and survivors of sexual violence. Our hope tonight is not only to let our audience get to know Megan, but also to educate all of you and hopefully reach someone who needed to hear this. At the end of our show, we'll make sure to give you information on how you can get in touch with someone if you'd like to share your story or get help. We have a lot to cover tonight, and it's kind of a heavy subject, so let's just get started. And I have Kathy on the line, and I have Megan. So, hey, guys. Good evening. Hello. Hi, Hi how are you? Hello. Hi, I'm good. Thanks so much for having me, and how are you? I'm good. Thanks for coming. I'm glad we could finally make our schedules work out. Of course, yeah, it's a privilege to be live right now. Okay, so it's great to be able to support fellow artists with a a good plan of things that are uh, definitely sport-worthy. I can't wait to learn more about this. Yeah. Since the movement is so grassroots, we definitely need all of the support and all of the exposure we can get so any avenue that we get, we're really grateful for. Yeah, that we understand. That's how we feel. <laughs> but, okay, I, I have I have a lot that we need or we want to talk about tonight. So let's get started with um, just a little bit about you and um, you know your background and how you came about this um, this world of art and like what inspired you to to do something like this. Just first of all. Yeah. Well, I've been working in the theater all of my life. I've been on stage since I was three years old. Um, I've worked in all different kinds of theater. I've performed as a classical performer, uh, performing Greek drama, performing Shakespeare. I performed in musicals. I was a choral performer. Um, I'm professionally trained vocally. I'm trained in dance. Uh, I'm trained in acting. So I've explored the art world as a performer throughout my years. Uh, But as I grew and really in my late adolescence, um, I started becoming very uh, civically involved in my community And it was really my civic action and being civilly involved in the political issues of my immediate community growing up that helped me discover how I could use my art for the sake of advocacy. Um, And I was getting introduced to pieces of ethnography, pieces of documentary art, pieces of protest art and political theater. And that was really what synergized me. That was what catalyzed my career in the arts and my career as a protest artist, as a performance artist and as an ethnographer. Um, Going into college, I started uh, my studies with a political science degree, and then uh, pretty soon after that, I picked up a double major in political science and theater. And so as an artist and as an activist, I was kind of always operating at uh, the intersection between politics and and art. Uh, Now I have experience not only as a performer, but as a producer, as a playwright, um, as a director, and of course as an actress. That's awesome, and first of all, you sound like you're super busy. <laughs> like, I have so much respect for everything that you've done. That's amazing. Uh, <laughs> it's a way of love, okay, so, believe me. Yeah, I think that's how all art is. Yeah. Um, okay, so 
what is She Will Fade? I know it's a movement that you started, but for all of um, our listeners tonight, can you explain that? Sure. She Will Fade is a documentary theater piece. Uh, it's formerly called an ethnography, and it's a piece which has been traveling the nation for four years now. Um, I've been traveling and collecting true stories from survivors of sexual violence, child molestation, and rape. Um, and we use these stories in transcript form to inspire pieces of theater, pieces of interpretive dance, music, visual art, and performance art, film, and photography. Um, these transcripts are also published in a collection in a virtual archive at my university, which is Florida Gulf Coast University. And so really this, I like to call it a movement because it's equal parts civic action and community building, community initiatives, um, as it is art and advocacy and entertainment. Um, and it's a really multifaceted thing, she will fade, but the face of the movement that the community really gets to see is those performances, those true stories, and the community of storytellers coming out uh, to engage in empowerment through art and, and transformation. Yeah. Um, okay. So I wanted to ask you what inspired you to begin this and what was that moment where you just, you were like, okay, I want to, I want to do this. Like I'm going to do this. Well, I'm a survivor myself. Um, and throughout my high school years, I really struggled with disenfranchisement and I really struggled to find my own identity and to find my own voice. Um, and that struggle led me to, uh, creating a blog space on Tumblr where I was publishing my poetry, and I've always been a prose poet. And actually two weeks after I graduated high school, Emily and I went to the same high school, so two weeks after uh, I graduated from Sycamore High School, uh, I posted a paragraph on my Tumblr, on my blog, and I said, if you are reading this message and you or anyone you love has a story about sexual violence that they'd be willing to share with me, either candidly or anonymously, please share it with me. I'd like to make some art about it. I'd like to make some inspired theater out of it. Um, and I put that paragraph on my blog and I went to sleep that night and I woke up the next morning and there were hundreds of messages in my inbox. And as I'm looking at the screen of messages from relative strangers, virtual strangers who I've never met before, who are from all over the world with all kinds of different stories, I had that moment, that sort of profound and prolific realization that, everybody has a story to tell and there's just no one to listen. And so sitting there on the other end of the computer screen, I appointed myself to be the person who listened to those narratives and tried to figure out where those narratives fit into the context of our American history. And as I started listening to the stories, I realized that they were so much more than just stories of violence. They were stories of violence and of trauma um, but they were really stories of transformation and of resilience and of survivorhood. And that's when I started to figure out that there was something much larger than just a story here. Um, the narrative was part of, a, part of a movement, really, and part of a change which was catalyzing all around me. Um, but it was my identity and really my need uh, for a friend and for someone to listen to me and to listen to my story uh, that inspired me to start this. Yeah, and I think that that's the power of, I mean, the world around us now with social media. Like, you know, those were strangers, and there's hundreds of them, and they come to you, and they confide in you. And I think that, in, like, that is so important now in today's world. And it just goes to show you, like, how important that social media and that connection with other people really is. 
Well, and we're living in an age when really all of us are survivors of some sort of persecution or another, and we're bounded by that trauma. And I think that the affinity we have for one another and, and for finding each other amidst our traumas and empowering one another uh, is really moving. And I think as, you know, especially as young women, um, it's one of the most important things we have, and we have to embrace that. Absolutely. Now, okay, you, Kathy, I want to give you, you find, a chance to talk. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, do you find do you find that the people that you interact with when you're getting these stories, are any of them, um, are do you get them face to face, or is it mostly virtual environments where you get them, and and how do they react to seeing um, seeing you know their stories brought to life? Uh, what what tends to be their reaction? For the first year or so, a lot of the stories came to me virtually. It was people I was meeting online, and I was Skyping them, actually, or I was uh, Ubering, so video chatting them or calling them on the phone. Uh, but after the first year or so went by, I ended up getting in the car and going to visit these people. And a lot of them were close to me. Um, they were in the same state. And there were a lot of individuals who had been connected with me through other people who had already contributed to the project. Um, and they were people who were accessible to me. And so I would just get in the car and I would go. And it didn't matter if that meant I was driving all the way through the night to show up at a stranger's house some early hour of the morning, I would do it. Um, and I would just kind of free fall into completely trusting the artistic process and the process of bringing that community together. Um, and it was always a wonderful experience. And so, yeah, at about the year mark, I would say, is when I really started to go out and meet people face-to-face and now um, these stories come to us, all of them come to us face-to-face. And we go and we meet the contributor and we sit down with them um, for a session, a contribution session. We bring a recorder and uh, we sit down typically in the privacy of the individual's home space. We turn that recorder on and we say, go ahead, tell us a story. And uh, it's transformative. And a lot of these people won't will be kind of distant from the artistic process because they've given the story and they've watched it go into the archives and they've had that feeling of knowing or affirming that they are changing their little piece of history with their story. And then a lot of these people have been directly involved in the artistic process and they've been with us at rehearsal and they've been with us at the venues and they've been with the actor or the actress bringing their story to life. And that has been such a mutually beneficial relationship for both artists, activists, and survivors, um, because you're serving and educating so many people along the way to producing this art piece. So um, it's really very circumstantial with each storyteller, but um, all of the storytellers who have contributed to the collection that's in the archives now, those are all individuals um, who are still very much a part of our lives, a part of the grounds team, um, and stay very up-to-date with the project and very up-to-date with us um, and have been a constant and omnipresent part of the artistic process. And I wanted do you, to do ask you, find it... you... Go ahead, Kathy. I was going to say, do you, do you find it, uh, especially in those early days, uh, how did you guys go about uh, funding your endeavors. I mean, theater is never, it's never cheap. It's always <laughs> a labor of love, obviously, and volunteer people. But were you guys able to get grants? This certainly sounds like a very mm-hmm. grant-worthy project, um, and it sounds like an, a, just an amazing, beautiful thing. But how did, how were you guys able to fund that, and how do you how do you continue to be able to fund that? Um, do you, do you so, accept, are you a charity? Do you accept uh, donations, things like that, that we could help with? At first, 
it was totally out of pocket for me. <laughs> it was every penny I could scrap together from working every retail job I had ever worked in my adolescence uh, <laughs> put towards, yeah, put towards uh, funding my endeavors. Uh, and my family was wonderfully supportive of it. Um, they really enabled me to travel and enabled me to do that kind of work and opened me up to be able to take on that kind of opportunity. But fortunately, um, at the beginning of my junior year at FGCU, um, I was offered a development grant through the Honors College of my university. And I, I graduated with my degrees from the Honors College here at FGCU. Um, and they offered me a really hearty development grant, which enabled me to not only publish the collection in the archives um, and fund my time doing that work, all of that transcription work, um, and creating the piece uh, for virtual publication, but also they funded the first ever um, execution of a main stage production of She Will Fade. And this past December, December of 2016, we produced a full-scale show uh, with a full weekend of runs with multiple stories contributing to a fully produced uh, play in a professional theatrical venue. Um, and they, the Honors College of FGCU, really funded all of that work uh, right now, we are in the process of trying to apply for 501c3 status so that we can continue to get this much-needed endorsement and begin to build an economic foundation for the movement. Um, but we still are very much subsisting on uh, university grant money to fund our endeavors. That's amazing. Uh, it's so great that you had such a great base of support. We were very privileged. Yeah. We were very privileged to have that. Well, and it's something important, and so I think that people can see that, and people, you know, that's why people want to be so supportive. Um, I wanted to ask you, what it typically, because I know that you said that you had produced a full-scale uh, theatrical version of this as a play, but typically what does one of your shows consist of, and what is that experience like? So most of our shows are showcase style. So they actually take the form of a cabaret, if you will. And I would say that three-fourths of the performances you see on stage are going to be transcript performances. So they're going to be the actual stories as told by the survivors performed by um, either other survivors or artists and activists who work with the movement. Um, and then that last piece of it usually consists of interpretive dance. Um, we've had original compositions, music compositions, we've had performance art, um, and we've had expressionist painting, so visual art. And then we have some conceptual filmmaking as well and photography, which gets displayed exhibition style at our showcases. Um, but most of what you see on a She Will Fade stage really is that direct dramatic interpretation um, of those ethnographic survivor stories. And now the shows are sort of taking on a more community-based, more experimental feel, and we're beginning to go out into the community and do some immersive pieces, some environmental pieces. So instead of performing in a theater space, um, we're performing in kind of unconventional spaces and bringing this art um, to public spaces and to public forums where it can take on a completely new form. And it's not just entertainment as presented within the theater, um, but it's, it's really activism, and it's civic action, and it's public dialogue presented through the medium of documentary theater. And that opens your audience up as well, and you can reach more people who 
you know, wouldn't conventionally be interested. Yeah, definitely. And our audiences have always been really engaged and really involved. It's very common for us to do a showcase somewhere or us to do a public performance in an immersive space out in the community. And members from the audience will walk right up to the performers, right up to the original members of the ensemble, and they'll say, um, hi, my name is so-and-so, and I have a story to tell. And that's just how the magic happens. Um, and it's, that's amazing. That happens very often in the performance space um, where people will walk up to us and they'll thank us for our work and they'll tell us um, a story which has impacted their life. They'll tell us about a loved one of theirs that's a survivor and how that person has overcome um, and how they transcended that trauma um, and so you really do feel the community rise up and take initiative, and you really do feel called to action. Um, but all of the gratitude in the world could never express just how privileged we are as artists to be able to, to do this work and uh, to uplift these people, to uplift these voices, um, and really to search for justice with our art um, and to battle against oppression. Yeah, that's that's amazing, and yeah, I just I I don't really have any words. I think that that's so such an amazing thing that you guys have been doing, and it's so wonderful that you've created that space, you know, for anybody. Thank you. And it's a difficult one to do. Oh, go ahead. How do you go about How do you go about casting with these? I know you said that some of the the cast members are survivors. Do you do you have mm-hmm. auditions for these, or is it mostly just people that are affiliated with the organization that volunteer, or a little of both, or? So it's completely open. All of our rehearsals here in Fort Myers, Florida, which is where our base is, simply because that's where I spend my years as a student, really developing the project. Um, our rehearsals and our casting process is completely open to anybody who wants to join. Uh, you don't have to have any formal theatrical experience. Um, there are no credentials that sort of qualify you to participate in this project or participate in this art piece. We really try to have the movement be completely open, and we try to have every rehearsal be a completely safe space for anybody who walks through the door uh, to make art and to be involved in this process. Um, the only rule uh, that goes with casting members of the ensemble to participate in the enlivening of these stories is that the identity of the actor or actress uh, be racially accurate and also gender accurate to the storyteller, him or her or themselves. Um, and the reason why that's necessary is because when telling these stories, in a new space and with a new voice, there are certain identifiers in the demographic of a survivor that need to carry over to the stage so that as an artist, you don't accidentally or incidentally reinscribe the oppression you're trying to uplift. Um, sexual violence disproportionately impacts two minority communities, and those are women of color and LGBTQIA plus people. And so really the only sort of caveat to the open casting process is that we try to bring in as many representatives of these particular minority communities uh, so that those voices, those identities, those spaces, and those stories are accurately and honestly and authentically represented on the stage so that we're not reinscribing that oppression when we do this retelling or this reincarnation, this rebirthing 
of these stories. I'm I'm so glad to hear uh, that you have representation too. Of you mentioned both sexes there because it seems like it's so easy for people not not to shine a light on the fact that this is sexual violence happens to men just as you mm-hmm. know, just, just well I don't know if it's just as frequently I don't know the statistics but it happens to men and it seems like that mm-hmm. there, people don't shine a light on that as often and I'm really mm-hmm. glad to see that you guys offer a safe space that you make an effort to to do that because those stories is like you said they the honesty is really the important part in there um and and I would imagine that that it's got to be it's got to be really really difficult for people to try to come forward and portray something like that mm-hmm. um you know and, and and if you can add that level of honesty in there where where those those factors are you know make a difference i i just mm-hmm. i really am glad to hear that that's that's amazing that you guys do that statistically speaking one in 16 collegiate men will become a survivor of sexual violence of some form. So by no means are male survivors anomalistic. Uh, Not only is it very common, but it's extremely stigmatized. Uh, And it's significantly more difficult for a male survivor to come forward than it is even for a female survivor to come forward. And already it's extremely difficult for a female survivor to come forward. The most accurate statistic we have tell us that between one in four and one in five collegiate women will become a survivor of sexual violence. Um, And reporting rates really for the past about 15 to 20 years, reporting rates have remained steadily between 30 and 40%. So those numbers don't even really give us an accurate depiction of the amount of people, the population of young men and women affected by this violence. Um, And, because of failing systems and failing institutions uh, not being capable of serving due process and likewise serving survivors justice and serving survivors a platform uh, in which to have their cases opened um, and investigated properly, there's really no incentive for survivors to come forward. Um, So it truly is a necessity. I mean, it is necessary that we create this space in which this dialogue happens because it's unfortunately not happening in the courtroom. Yeah, I um, I go to a junior college here, and I even at my college where we only have 4,000 students, like we have received recently, we have received emails from our campus police talking about these issues mm-hmm. and saying, like, this is a problem. Mm-hmm. Even here, you know, the only people that live on campus where I go to school are the are people on scholarship. So when you think about the mm-hmm. fact that you only have people on campus until 6 p.m. most days, the fact that it's that much of a problem even there in a place mm-hmm. where you wouldn't expect it, what's in what seems like a safe place is so alarming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is. It, it is alarming. And unfortunately, uh, the Title IX system, which is put in place to give survivors uh a system of support to give survivors an institution and a mechanism through which they can search for justice and search for safety um, has really been unfortunately a failure to most survivors. And um, I've had the privilege of being able to speak with a lot of collegiate age survivors, men and women alike, who uh, have had dealings with the Title IX systems on their campuses um, and have really spoken about just how franchised Uh, Title IX has become and how 
the branding of universities and what a business universities are um, mm-hmm. and how commercialized universities have become, how consumerized they've become, has really made it impossible for universities to be truly accountable for the sexual violence that's happening on their campus because that transparency um, comes with responsibility. That accountability to be transparent uh, to your survivor demographic on your campus um, comes with a shocking and sad responsibility and level of transparency um, that makes, frankly, makes universities look bad. Um, And so, the Title IX system really from its origin uh, has had trouble being effective at addressing survivorhood on campuses for so many reasons. Well, I just, I think about, you know, the fact that this, ha- I go there every day. This happens in, you know, this mm-hmm. is happening right in front of us in the daylight. I mean, this, I live in a neighborhood, my college, okay, I live in a very small town in Alabama for anybody listening who <laughs> doesn't know. And, <laughs> And I go to a college that's, you know, five minutes from my house. People leave their car doors unlocked. You know, people leave their keys in their car in the driveway around here. And so to think about the fact that this is happening in the in the broad daylight, like in front of us, where even mm-hmm. where I go to school, which is, seems so impossible, is, is insane to me. The fact that we have enough of this happening where we have our campus security sending out mass emails and mass texts saying you need to be watching out for this, that's alarming to me to say the least especially where I live mm-hmm. you just don't expect that here I mean you don't well so and the the characterization sort of the illustration um which is given to um sexual transgressors or assailants of sexual crimes um is that they're scary men in trench coats you know you've got this image of yeah. someone sort of jumping out from behind the bush and violently assaulting someone. And though that can be the case, that is not always the case. And oftentimes on college campuses, um, survivors will report that they know their attackers, that their attackers were their friends, their girlfriends, their boyfriends, their roommates. Yeah. So really the problem with the stigma and why it's so surprising, especially to someone, you know, living in safe suburban Alabama <laughs> is um, yeah. actually because of the, the preconceived notion that we approach the conversation of sexual violence with about the identities of sexual attackers. Yeah, it's insane to me. I mean, at my school, you know, we did experience recently uh, there was someone that I went, to, I went to school, I had a class with, who had found me on Facebook um, who didn't know my name, and that was alarming to me, to say the least. You know, I meet this person, mm-hmm. and then they find me on social media without knowing my name, So that's, and start messaging me, you know, graphic things, which is not okay with me mm. by any means. And then I, we went to school, it was me and my friend went to school, and, you know, things were totally fine, things were normal, and then one day this person said something in class, and she turned around and, you know, responded during, like, an open discussion, and after class, like, apparently it offended the person. After class, we were walking out, and we heard a group, him in a group of people talking about us and saying, that's that girl who did this, and, like, that scares me mm. enough. Like, first of all, this man was a lot older than me. I'm 19, and this mm. man is well into his 30s, maybe 40, and to hear him talking to a group of college-age men about, you know, that's that girl who said this to me, first of all, like, he didn't even have to come near me, and that scares me, and this person is someone that, you know, I was fearful of. That is insane to me. Like, I never expected that, where you know, around here, and I know that that's such, like, 
a stereotype to say you never expect that around here, but you really don't. Like I said, you leave right. your car and you leave your keys in it. So right. for that to happen, you know, for that to be happening and for that to affect like me and a friend of mine, it's crazy to me. Well, I'm very sorry that you and your friend had to have um, your safety, especially your emotional safety, jeopardized in that moment. Um, but, yeah, it is definitely something that pe- everybody sort of experiences in some iteration. Um, a lot of times I'll talk to people who will say, well, you know, I have an experience, but I'm not really sure it's made for the project. And what that means is that these are people who are experiencing verbal assault. Um, these are people who are experiencing interactions very similar to what you experienced, unwanted, certainly unconsensual uh, interactions, and uh, they're having trouble characterizing themselves as survivors. They're having trouble understanding why it had the impact on them it had, or they're saying exactly what you're saying. They're saying, gosh, well, that never happens here. You know, I, I leave my car unlocked and I leave yeah. the screen door open. Um, so it really is um, – it is alarming just how close to home the issue hits. Um, but I think it's also inspiring because I think that if we can feel like this is something which is all around us and we can recognize the omnipresence of the issue, we can also recognize our own power um, and how responsible we are to other survivors, how accountable we are to ourselves, um, to our own identities, especially as uh, young women. Um, and, yeah, it's essential that we all develop uh, that level of, of self-awareness and emotional intelligence, which holds us accountable to our immediate communities and to keeping the people around us safe. Now, I, 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 I figure you probably get a lot of uh, interaction from people, you know, being right there with the college campus, being affiliated with the college, you probably get a lot of people from, uh, you know, younger ages, early 20s, uh, you mm-hmm. know, teens, early 20s, things like that. Um, do you get a lot of response from um, older demographic members? You know, uh, mm-hmm. I, I imagine this, with it being virtual starting out, especially you probably got a response from pretty much anybody and everybody that across demographics, I mean. But um, do you do you find that you, you still get a steady, uh, a, you know, a steady response from uh, people of all demographics, or do you find that's more younger because you're around that college campus? Well, I would say that most of our archival collection consists of stories from uh, people whose attacks happened either when they were in their adolescence or they were in their college years. That definitely is the dominant uh, identifier in our demographic base. But I have gotten a number of stories uh, specifically from older women, and actually we're working on setting up a contribution from an older man. Um, He's a man in his 50s. And uh, these are people who have had these stories inside of them for a long time and are beginning the process of reframing that internal narrative and working through that internalization to find a space for their story in this project. And it's markably different how these older individuals tell their story um, and how they, how they think of their identity uh, because you can tell that Um, unlike the adolescents we're talking to or unlike the college students we're talking to, these are people who are joining a conversation that they almost feel is not theirs. Mm -hmm. And they're joining a conversation which has been framed for their generation very differently from how our brave young generation uh, is framing this conversation. I mean, even look at what we're doing right now. You know, virtually we're having a conversation about the significance and the salience Um, of sexual violence on college campuses. And we're doing this, you know, via a virtual uh, radio show. So this is something that uh, members of 
really even the generation before us wouldn't have had the access to. Um, and this resource might not have necessarily been so readily available to them. So these are people who are really having to work through a lot of internalizing their story and years of suppression and of silence to find themselves in our space. But, yeah, we do have a handful of uh, older women, middle-aged women, um, all of them in their late 40s, early 50s. Um, and then we are working on setting up that contribution with the man in his 50s. That's I wanted good to, to hear ask you, that um, you. Yeah, go Yeah, I was going to let you talk, Kathy. Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry, no, I didn't interrupt ahead. you. I was going to ask um, what is, or, okay, so originally this was something that you started. Were you an actress in this piece? And what do you do now? Because I know that you direct it as well. So, what is your role with the movement now? as opposed to when you were at well, college and living there? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, my constant role has really been to serve as uh, the movement's main ethnographer. So I am the person who actually goes to get the stories. Um, I'm the person who shows up with the recorder and sits in front of the survivor and has the immense privilege of actually being a part of that moment of storytelling. Um, and then really my largest role throughout the process has been um, – to sort of serve as the mediator, to, to bring that story to the performance space and create that art piece. So that does involve casting an actor or actress and directing them um, in their depiction of this story. Um, but my role has been a really fluid and ever-changing role throughout the years of She Will Fade. Um, I spent a while, my junior year, actually writing and developing a policy proposal which was an augmentation of Title IX. Um, I was competing for an international Truman Scholarship, and I used my work on She Will Fade to actually develop and write policy uh, for sexual violence survivors. Um, I've also done a lot of local community work, a lot of local advocacy, um, work with local adolescent groups, um, work at rape crisis centers. So my role has been really fluid, and I've gone from being ethnographer and, you know, sitting one-on-one with that survivor and being a part of that storytelling moment to uh, being a producer, being a director, being a playwright, in moments being an actress, where actually more seldom the moments of me acting in the project. Um, And I really, I have a wonderfully talented ensemble of actors and actresses and performers who have dedicated really the past three, three or so years now of their lives to bringing these stories alive on stages all across Southwest Florida. Um, and, you know, I've really transitioned from that artistic role to more, a more political role, to serving as um, a community face and a representative of the survivor community. So I've been privileged to segue and transition between all of these different responsibilities that being the originator um, of this project has for me. Well, we only have about um, 10 minutes left before they forcibly remove us, but I wanted to ask you, <laughs> I did recently see a post. Yeah, I've had that happen to me before. I've been talking and talking and talking, and it just cuts off, and it's like you're done. <laughs> they but, virtually uh, forcibly remove you. <laughs> yes, they really do. They just throw you off. They don't care. But, uh, okay, I wanted to ask, I recently saw a photo of you in your, you were wearing a bra and underwear, and you had handprints on your body, and I was, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you about this. When was this, and what was the message that you were trying to share? Uh, that was a performance art piece 
that I did at our last showcase, um, which premiered in, oh gosh, I guess that was last month. <laughs> that was at the end of last month, at the end of April. Um, April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, and so every April we have an annual showcase. And that was a performance art piece that I was doing in which um, I basically allowed for my body to be the site of performance. And I have a poster in that picture, and that poster is a legend. It's a key. And next to the blue handprint, you'll see the words, for a survivor. And next to the black handprint, you'll see the words, for those who lost their lives to sexual violence. And I asked everybody who was at the showcase, uh, performers alike, audience and ensemble members alike, um, to use the paint at my feet. And I had little basins of blue paint and black paint um, to place a handprint on my body if they identified in either one of these categories um, or if they knew someone who identified in these categories and allowing for uh, my body to be the site of this, this art piece, um, people placed handprints on me as the night went on. And then by the end of the showcase, uh, pretty much my whole body was covered in blue and black paint. I just thought it was a very moving image and I wanted to ask you about it. Um, Thank you. Okay. So, we, yeah, we only have a few more minutes, but um, really quickly, is there something that you would like to leave everyone with? And also, how can people be, become involved with the movement or share their own story with you? Sure. Yeah, sure. So if anybody listening um, wants to read that collection of stories that I mentioned and wants to visit our archives, you can visit that. The link is fgcu.digital.slvc.org or you can just Google SGCU archives, she will fade, and it'll probably be either the first or second link in your browser. Um, also, we do have a Gmail, um, which I am the only one who has access to it, and we use that to set up contributions. So if you have a story or you know someone um, and someone you love has a story to share of survivorhood, if you email shewillfade at gmail.com, uh, we will get to that and we will set up a contribution session so that your story can join the ranks of those in the archive. Um, also, we do have social media. Um, so if anybody listening would like to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, um, we have all of that available so that you can stay up to date and you can stay engaged with the movement as it grows and as it changes. And as of this fall, I will be in grad school in Manhattan in New York City and so if anybody listening is local to the New York area and they'd like to become a part of this work, uh, by all means, um, I am happy to, to make myself available. My name is Megan Emily Schindler, um, and uh, you can reach out to me because I'm always looking for um, another artist or another activist uh, to join me by my side and fight for this cause alongside me. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. This is um, really informative and I think that this is something that we needed to share um, and if I was closer I would become involved with you but I live in Alabama oh. in the middle of nowhere well you've already so. become involved this is definitely becoming That's... involved this definitely counts well you'll have to come back yes thank you so much for share with us thank you yes thank you so much and um I can't wait for you guys to get your 501c3 set up so I can throw some money your way this is such a worthwhile <laughs> <Yeah>. project <laughs> Thank you. I really, really yeah. appreciate that. And hopefully if that happens, um, I'll come back on and I'll have all kinds of new and exciting things to share with your listener base. 
That would be wonderful. And this will be available on iTunes later, so you can share with everyone, of course. Um, but yeah, we would love that, and we will make we will share your social media on our our show's social media and my personal, of course, as well. So, thank you for coming tonight. And I'm sorry that we have to stop talking, but it's gonna go. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, bye, guys. Have a good evening. All right. Bye. <laughs> thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay, Kathy. Let's wrap it up quick. Yes. Um, Next, we have like four minutes, but I hate when I get down to the last couple. So um, next week we have Marianne Alda, I think is how you say her name. I'll have to ask her before the broadcast. She's a comedian. She's an actress. She's hilarious on social media. And um, I'm sure she'll have lots of comments about our administration because that's how it goes these days with our comedians. So that'll be fun. And um, you you guys, let us know what you thought of tonight's show. Um, and if you would like to get in touch with Megan, I can put you in touch with her or you can use the social media it is at talk underscore daytime for us or at Emily C0915 and Kathy is at so much whatever. So get in touch with us if you would like, if you just want to share with us or you would like to talk to us or let us know what you thought of the show and I can put you in contact with her or I can share that email on our social media and stuff too. So yeah, Kathy, anything you'd like to add? Just, uh, just again, what a, what a fantastic project. Uh, I, I, I would love to be able to see one of their performances and, and just support uh, generally that we, I love the arts. Uh, I love social issues and seeing, seeing somebody support some, uh, such an important social issue through art is always something that Absolutely. basically just hits, hits, hits the spot right there. That's the thing I love. So yeah, I'm, I'm well, very a, excited to have talked to her nerd, today. As a theater nerd from back in the day, I would love, 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 to be a part of one of these, and I wish that I was closer. Maybe we'll road trip, Kathy. We might have to do that together sometime. Sounds good to me. I'm, I would love, I'm actually not that far. I from, love that. I'm not that far from Fort Myers. It's not too far away. So. Yeah, I would love. I might have to make a trip when they, when they have their showcase. I know I would love that. We might have to do that together. But um, I also wanted to say really quickly because you know time. Um, if you are listening to tonight's show, it doesn't matter. Regardless of your story, nobody's story is less important than anyone else's. It doesn't matter what it was. It doesn't matter if somebody made a comment at you that bothered you or if you experienced violence. Uh, it doesn't matter. Your story is just as valid as the next person's, regardless of what it is. I hate when people say, um, you know, I didn't have that happen to me, but I had this happen to me. You know, like, it doesn't matter what it was. It was just as important if it affected you. And uh, we would love to share it. We would love to hear it, put you in touch with someone, put you in touch with Megan if you'd like to be a part of this. So regardless, like, it, it matters. So, that is all I would like to say tonight because we're going to get thrown off. Um, as always, <laughs> thanks, Kathy, for being a, my sidekick. Well, you're not really my sidekick. Oh. I think that I'm the sidekick because you're really. older. <laughs> not really. It's, it's all right. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, I'll talk to you. We'll see you guys next Thursday, and we'll hear from you on social media, I'm sure. So bye, guys. Bye. Bye, everybody. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.